Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership funk, soul, jazz, and pop guitarist, singer, songwriter, producer, and arranger, Charles Julian Fearing, who, among his long list of credits, served as a member of Ray Parker's band Radio. His extensive sessions work includes stars Michael Jackson, Herb Alpert, Lionel Richie, Kenny Rogers, Johnny Mathis, the Crusaders, Nancy Wilson, Joe Cocker, Denise Williams, Jeffrey Osborne, New Edition, Tina Marie, George Duke, Ray Charles, The Spinners, The Temptations, Dionne Warwick, Patti LaBelle, Barry White, Bonnie Raitt, Tina Turner, and Celine Dion. In all, yeah. he has performed, written, and or produced more than 250 gold and platinum records. Other credits include movie and TV soundtracks and commercial jingles. Charles, man, what haven't you done? Man, you know, I've you know, I'm truly blessed. Um, you know, um, we're in the process of putting a super group together. And um, I can't mention the first names, but if I mention the first names, you'll know them by their first names. So I'm very excited, um, you know, that um, I'm part of the group and I have submitted, you know, we're going to write the songs together. So I've submitted four tracks. You know, and I'm just very excited and it's going to be a, so it's going to resemble Sly and the Family Stone. So it's going to be seven members, definitely two females. Um, you know, it's going to be two males singing and I'm one of them. And um, so it's going to be the funk of Sly and the Family Stone because Sly was from the Church of God in Christ feel and I am too. But with the sophistication of the Crusaders and the production and vocal prowess of Steely Dan. So if you can get to that, that's that, that's where we're going to be. And you know, everybody is definitely talented on their in their own right, and I'm very happy. And th this group's going to resemble the world. 
So it's not just people from the States. It's like maybe three people from the States and the rest from around the globe. You know, so I'm very excited about that. Well, well now I'm excited too. So how long are you going to make us wait for that? Well, um, we're in the process now. Um, you know, like I said, I just submitted my tracks this week. So um, I submitted four tracks, but I'll keep you in the loop, you know, as we're going along, you know, you know, as we're going along, because everything is, you know, I mean, people already want to book us and we haven't recorded one thing yet. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, well. so, you know, so, you know, so it's very exciting. It's, you know, it's, it, it's very exciting. Well, congratulations on that. I definitely look forward yeah. to that hookup and hearing that for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, it's going to be, good, you know. And, you know, um, I'm writing for a couple of films and working on a couple of artists. Um, and like I said, you know, I always manage to stay busy and I feel good. You know, like last year um, around this time, you know, Holland Dozier Holland, they have called me to, you know, I've been working with them since I was like 14 years old. So, and it's amazing. Um, H.B. Barnum was a contractor, right? So he calls me up and um, he says, um, so um, Brian and Eddie and Lamont, um, you know, um, the Four Tops are going to do a Broadway play. So they're right, you know, they've written new music for the play. McKinley Jackson is arranging and H.B. Barnum says, so I've been told to tell you to bring everything um, and that includes your Bella Laika. Um, so because um, they've already let me know that you're the only guitarist. And so that's classical, acoustic, electric, rock, jazz, you know, so it feels good to be in that um, arena. And I got to meet Duke Fakir, you know, who was the last original living four top. And as I'm sitting there and talking to this man who still works you know he was very active in um you know you know you know the production along with um eddie holland and brian holland unfortunately lamont was sick and you know you know lamont just passed away but it's just great to be in what is greatness i mean you know these guys and when they're writing a song and you know, to be with McKinley Jackson and, you know, like I've known McKinley since I was 13, 14, hanging out at ABC Dunhill. And, you know, I get to play his charts and it's it's just a beautiful ride. You know, it's a beautiful ride to, you know, to still work with these guys and they still call me and, um, you know, and they believe in me. And it's just a wonderful thing. You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. That's great so, to hear, especially because I don't know if you know, but the Holland brothers were on the show, like right before they launched that show. So uh, okay. we we're talking about their book, you know, at that point. Right. Uh -huh. And uh, yeah. So uh, very interesting to hear about your involvement in it, too. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, man. So, um, you know, they did the music for the first Wise Club. Right. And they hadn't been together as writers and producers for like 25, 27 years, right? So we did that about maybe seven, eight years ago, right? Or okay, so we're in the studio and they all three of them are sitting down, and Lamont looks at Brian. I'm sorry, looks at Eddie, and he says, Eddie, 
every time I hear the lyric to that song, it makes me cry. So as Eddie is singing the lyric, Lamont Dozier is, is getting tears in his eyes. And I'm just sitting there just observing. These guys have written so many hits together that this lyric that Eddie wrote still affected Lamont Dozier, who as a lyricist and writer on his own has done great stuff, you know, and to be in that moment. And I just treasure, I treasure those moments, you know, um, because to me, you know, the Burt Bacharachs and the Holland Dozier Hollands, you know, to me, they're like the, well, sorry, Burt Bacharach and Hal David, they are the Bach and Beethovens of today you know, because of the level and the kind of music that um, they have written. And this music for the Four Tops is unbelievable, dude. I mean, it's unbelievable. And I, you know, it's just a blessing to see these moments with great people that are just regular guys. I mean, you know what I'm saying? You know, sure. Are they, you know, like Shaq says, Player, players are rich, owners are wealthy, they're wealthy, you know what I'm saying? But they're just regular guys, you know what I'm saying? And 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 that's the beautiful part um, of being around them, you know? Um, and when they got their Hollywood star, you know, Barry Gordy um, inducted them. And it was cool because <laughs> he was like, we were all good. And then I have to stop and say, where did our love go? He was using the titles of their songs when he mm -hmm. says, you know, where did our love go? Then I have to say, stop in the name of love. You know, still water. I mean, it was great the way Barry did it. And then Eddie Holland says, um, well, Barry, you know, we, we have always respected you and we will always be family. You know, and it's great to see you know, because this is the stuff we grew up on listening to their music, you know? Yeah. 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 Just wonderful. Wonderful. That is, that is fantastic. Uh, what an experience. Um, I do want to uh, educate the folks a little bit uh, more on Charles though. Also. Okay. Sure. Sure. So sure, let's, sure. yeah, let's, let's jump into that a little bit, Charles. Um, you know, you're from Los Angeles and a musical well, family. No, 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 no. Actually I was born in Washington, D.C. Okay, did uh, grew up in Los Angeles? Um, partly. So how we came to Los Angeles, my mother was a mezzo-soprano, and um, she was with the L.A. Phil. So um, we came out to Los Angeles, and I started going to school in Los Angeles, and I miss Washington, D.C., because there was no snow, you know. Um, but I acclimated, you know, you know, very well. And I started playing trumpet. That was my first instrument. You know, I was going to follow in my mother's footsteps and, you know, join the orchestra. And um, then I saw a videotape of um, Jimi Hendrix and, and I saw the way he played and, and the way he licked his tongue and the way the girls responded. And I'm like, I'm playing the wrong instrument. You know what I'm saying? So, so I started playing guitar and, you know, and I already knew how to read. And, um, you know, and, you know, I start playing guitar. Then my uncle, who um, played bass trombone for Count Basie, his name is Benny Powell. Um, 
after Basie died, he joined the Merv Griffin Orchestra. They were still in New York. And when they moved out here, you know, I started hanging out with him and not realizing that I'm hanging around some of the finest musicians on the planet playing in the Merv Griffin band. You know, Harry Sweets, Edison, and just all these guys. And, you know, and um, it, you know, it was just great to see the level of musicianship, you know. And I remember going to a rehearsal and, and, and my uncle Benny tells me, you know, they played this chart and it was freaking unbelievable. Then the arranger makes two comments. They play it again. It's like a hundred times better. And then he turns around to me and he says, see, that's the kind of musician you need to be, you know? So from that point, you know, I realized that, you know, what I had to be in order to stay in the game and to be very versatile at what I do, you know? So that's, you know, so it's been good, man. It's been great. What would you say, Charles, was your first big break in terms of both performing and studio? Okay. So I'm at Fairfax high school. I'm in the 10th grade. I come home from school. My mother says, um, somebody from Motown called up here, um, call him back. So I called this guy back and he says, hey, man, um, I hear you play guitar and you can read music and um, you can play rock guitar too, right? I say, yeah. He says, look, we're doing a demo on Marvin Gaye. Um, we'll pay you $200. So I go down to the studio. Um, I play the line. And then he says, hey, man, um, I'm going to tell all the other producers about you, you know. And I'm like, yeah, okay, right. So a couple of weeks later, my mother says, hey, somebody else from Motown called. So now I'm down at Motown West, Mo West um, in Cali, probably two to three times a week. So my counselor calls me in and says, why am I ditching school? I said, I'm not ditching school. I'm down at Motown working. She says, well, okay, this is what I need you to do. You know, I've I completely don't believe you. Um, get a letter on a letterhead. And so when I go to the studio, I see Smokey and I say, hey, Smokey, look, you know, I'm in trouble at my school. Um, you know, they think I'm ditching. Can you please have somebody write a letter on a letterhead? And, you know, you know, so I could prove to them that I'm working down there. He says, okay, okay, baby. Okay, baby, I'll get it done. So, you know, I wasn't driving then. So as my dad is coming to pick me up, I'm about to leave. And the guard says, hey, aren't you supposed to take this, Smokey? Tell me you need this. So I see it's a letter. I see the letterhead and it says to whom it may concern. And so I didn't open the letter because it was sealed because I didn't want anybody to think I doctored the letter. So the next day I go into school. I hand it to my counselor. My counselor opens up the letter and she starts screaming. So I'm like, oh, my God, what did, what's in this letter? Then she calls all the other counselors over and they're not screaming, but they're looking at me in a positive way. Then they call the principal over, right? So then he's pointing at me, you know, shaking his head, giving a, a cool thing. Smokey had personally written the letter and said if they needed further clarification to contact him at his personal number down at Motown. So I became the guy at Fairfax High that was always down at Motown. You know, so that was my first big break doing a demo for Marvin Gaye 
playing a written line using my fuzz face and my white Stratocaster. <laughs> what, what what year would you say that was? That had to be 71, 72. Yep. 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 So, you know, um, it was it was it was just a great thing. Then I just started working and then um I I hooked up with Barry White and I wasn't old enough to go on the road and they're, they're like, Well, we're gonna change your age, don't worry about it, you know. And so now I'm on the road um working with Barry White and I told Barry, I said, Look, I'm gonna do your sessions and we're gonna co-write some songs together. Now, mind you, I could already conduct an orchestra at that time. So a couple of the rehearsals, you know, with the full orchestra, I conducted the orchestra. You know, then I told Barry I wanted to really learn how to arrange. And he gave me access to all of the master charts. You know, the master chart that has everybody's part on it that Gene Page had written. For Love Unlimited? Yeah, well, no, for, for Love Unlimited, for the Love Unlimited Orchestra, and for Barry White. So now, by then, I had started to play on the record. So now I studied bar by bar why why Gene Page would put the violins, the violas, the cellos, the flutes, you know, um, you know, um, on, on the oboes, the French horn, and I studied this like you wouldn't believe, you know, um, and it was just incredible, you know, and like Barry told me, he says, you know. Charlie O, because he's called me Charlie O, the musical menu. He said, Charlie O, this is hundreds of thousands of dollars of charts, but I'm going to let you have access to it, you know, and, and it was the best thing that I could have ever done. And then when I started working with Gene Page, you know, like I did probably six Johnny Mathis albums with um, Gene, you know, Gene would tell me, you know, okay, look, I'm writing the string arrangement. If you don't have a session, we're doing it at A&M. Come by and watch the session, and then I'll give you the chart because you are because I would always keep the rhythm chart that we you know that he handed out, and then he said you can get that too. So you know I've had you know Gene Page, Benjamin Wright, who's an incredible arranger, who actually I call Benjamin Wright dad, and you know so that's how I learned how to really write from just having access and people giving me the charts, you know, and I kept on, um, like I always wanted to go to college and I didn't, but, um, one of my college professors, when I went to enroll, he was like, man, why are you always not here again? I said, dude, I'm in the studio working. And I was telling him who I was doing. He said, dude, you're doing what I want to do. He said, so let me give you some books on theory and composition and I told him, you know, that I've been studying Gene Page charts and all that kind of thing. And and so that's what I did. You know, I studied and I just kept studying. And it's just been great because, you know, it doesn't make a difference what the what the scenario is. You know, um, like Quincy Jones, he called me a chameleon. He's like, man, you're like a chameleon. He said, whatever the music is, you turn into what that music is, you know, and. And to be able to read, but also to be able to improvise on a dime, you know what I'm saying, is just, you know, it, it's just a blessing. So I'm very blessed to be able to do what I do 
on a consistent basis, you know, and my now 15 year old son, he goes with me, um, you know, and um, we just had an interview last weekend and he was telling um, he was telling the lady, he says, so uh, my dad was working with this old guy named Lou Adler and I didn't know who Lou Adler was. And um, and um, my dad told me to Google him. But on this particular session, Lou Adler tells me, he says, look, I'm about to give your dad some music that he's never seen, and he's not going to make one mistake. He's not going to make one mistake. And, you know, <laughs> you know, so he gets to see the creative process and why you need to be ready. And but also open for suggestions, you know, like, I don't think I know everything. You see what I'm saying? Um, you know, like one session with Bill Withers. You know, he's telling me he wants me to play the acoustic guitar and he closed his eyes and he started playing. And I'm like, Bill, I can probably play what you're playing and and technically it'll be better. But the feel that you have. I can't duplicate that. So I tell you what you play. I'll play. Then if you want me to come back and do some acoustic stuff, I'll do it after you play, because part of Bill with this thing was that guitar. You know, and that, you know, and that relationship between his voice and the guitar. And I think a lot of people don't realize that when they try to up their production game, you know, well, I'm going to do this. It's the foundation that you lay out that keeps getting you to the <laughs> to the golden goose. You know what I'm saying? It's like one day I'm with Quincy Jones and I asked him, I said, Quincy, so what record? should I listen to of yours that's going to show me the ultimate production and arranging? He said, man, it ain't one of mine. I'm what? You know, I'm thinking of my mind, freaking Quincy Jones. This is what he said. He said, pick up any Steely Dan record. Any. Doesn't make a difference which one. There you see the excellence of production arranging, vocals, lyric concepts, all of these things, you know, and 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 he was right. Because if you put on the Steely Dan record today, you don't sit there and say this sounds dated or anything like that. You know, um, 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 the subjects are relevant. The production is incredible. The writing, you know, um, Donald Fagan's voice, it's just, it's just, you know, so when it's like that, and I've had many experiences, you know, that have been like that. Um, like, I remember working with Burt Backrack on a, you know, he called me for a couple of sessions and I said, man, I'm so excited. He's like, I said, I'm excited because I realized that in your music, you're going to have a different time signature for a couple of bars. And I'm just waiting <laughs> to play that. And to see it, and after the session, can I please keep the chart? You know what I'm saying? And he was just so gracious in his, um, you know, and you know, and I was dead serious. I was like, man, I'm ready for the time change, and you have a bar of three eight or whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? Or you know, or you do a quick key change, you know, um, because you know those kind of people that have that kind of thought process that make it work on a consistent basis. 
You see what I'm saying? You know, yeah. that is genius. That's genius, dude. And yeah. so, you know, you know, I'm always listening and reaching and, and studying. Do you know, with all that amazing work you did, do you remember actually hearing yourself on a piece of music on the radio for the first time and, and what it was? Yes. Okay, so I get a call to do Dusty Springfield, okay, at Cherokee Studios. Um, actually, it's right across, it's Caddy Corner to Fairfax High School. It's on Fairfax right below Melrose, right? So I was familiar with the area because I went to Fairfax. And David T. Walker's playing guitar, and I'm wondering why I'm at the session. And David T. tells me, you got a reason to be here. And, you know, you're going to make a contribution. And I remember hearing that record on the radio, you know, the Dusty Springfield record, which was like my first big pop session, you know, you know, like I had done a lot of funk sessions. And by that time I was moving up in the Motown chain to be, be on the A sessions. You know what I'm saying? Cause I was still doing demos and I had moved up to the beast. B B sessions, and now I'm getting called to do the A sessions, you know, with uh, Ray Parker and Scott Edwards and Ed Green and you know David T, who was you know who was my hero, you know, and um, you know, you know, so that's when it all started, you know, that Dusty Springfield, you know, and I got to hear it not on the R and B station, you know what I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> you know on I'm the saying? mainstream radio, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. You know, on a top 100 pop station. And how how did your relationship with Ray progress? And how did you get to be part of that band? Okay, so by the time Ray... Okay, so this is what happened. My first session with Ray Parker, right? Um, the producer... Asked Ray to tune my guitar. And Ray said, well, if he can't tune his guitar, he doesn't even need to be on the session. So I tell Ray, thank you. So we started running into each other all the time. And because of the, because see, when I was 13, 14 years old, I used to always hang out at ABC Studios. And Ray would always work for Lamont Dozier with McKinley Jackson. So I was so I knew Ray and McKinley was like, hey, you know, you know, he's an up and coming, you know, guitar singer and so on, so on, so on. So then it just progressed to the point where um, I was doing a session with James Gatson and we're at Kendon Recorders and Carol Pincus, who was married to Harold, Ch Harold Childs. She um, worked for Clive Davis and she came in and she says to me, uh, Ray Parker wants you to be. Um, you know, he's, you know, you know, he's starting a band and he wants you to be in his band. So that's how it all started. It started at Kendrick Recorders. At that time, I was under contract with Barry White. Right. So, you know, I had to go tell Barry White that I was going to leave him, you know, to join Ray's band. And so that's how that happened. And he was cool with it. Well, no, actually, Barry White started crying. Because he was like, Charlie O, you know, I have so much in store for you. And, you know, but I knew that I had found out the um, 
money into promotion that they were going to put in to radio. And everybody knew my name because by that time I'm on, you know, big records, but they didn't know my face. So radio gave me an opportunity to um, to um, get my face out there, you know, and by this time I was already working with Maurice White doing um, Denise Williams and the emotions and all of that stuff, you know, and we had the same management. And so it worked out good for me because um, Verdine White and Robert Wright, they made me part of their production company. So now as a writer, as a publisher, as an arranger, not just as a guitarist, I'm getting this other money. Like Verdine said, hey, look, man, um, you know, in the daytime, I'm rehearsing with the fire. So in the daytime, if you don't have a session, you and Robert get together and write the songs. And then we just meet up at Sunset Sound. So that's, you know, and it was just a blessing to me because now I'm not just getting double or triple scale for playing the guitar. I'm getting double or triple scale for playing the guitar. I'm getting arranging money. I'm getting production money. You know, um, I didn't even know what publishing was, you know, and I got a lesson in, you know, there's only two sides of the song. You know, and, you know, why do people fight over the publishing? Well, because the publisher owns the copyright. This is like a new whole world for me, you know, and, um, you know, it's been great to have so many people that um, believed in me, but also taught me valuable lessons on how to protect my intellectual property. Yeah, you said the that's the main thing, you know, that's the main yeah. thing, you know, so those lessons are priceless. And so now I teach my son and other younger um, writers, you know, you know, you have to protect your property, you know, and I show my son, hey, look, daddy wrote this song when he was 19 years old and daddy still gets paid because daddy took care of the business part of it. You know, the business, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and that's what's important because I've seen writers, you know, that, you know, they're given $1,500 for the song and they'll think that's a lot of money because, you know, if somebody doesn't have anything, $1,500 is a lot of money, then that producer will go back and sell the song for artists and get $200,000 <laughs> for the producer's fee, you know, yeah, and they'll put their name on the song because once they give you the $1,500, they, in a sense, bought the rights to the song. Yeah, yeah, I've heard way yeah. too many horror stories. So I'm oh, glad that God. you're not one of those uh, casualties, um, no. Charles. But um, just a couple more things on radio, though. You came on the second album, right? Or were you on the first one? I was on the first album, but I couldn't have my picture because I was on a contract with Barry White. Okay. So mm -hmm. those first two albums, from a funk perspective, were fire. Um, right. You know, Jack and Jill was a hit, but it was kind of atypical really the whole thing other than that was really funky. And, right. um, so I love those first two albums, uh, especially, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, funk fans hold them in high esteem. Right. And, right. uh, also, uh, were you on the, uh, Bootsy tour? Did you participate in that? Oh, yeah. Oh, I was oh, at the, yeah. uh, I was at the LA forum show. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yes. I was there stage, right, man. Stage, right. Yeah. Bootsy. Now let me tell you about that tour, man. Okay, so Bootsy, the nicest person on the planet. So at 
their sound checks, you know, they would let us sound check first, right? Man, I stated every sound check. Because, man, when they were warming up, the funk that was coming off of that stage, it was unbelievable. They would just, somebody would just start playing. And all of a sudden, you're hearing something that really needs to be a song. And then Fred Wesley and the horns would just come in playing. And it would be different every night. I mean, you know, so if we didn't have an in-store or or signing autographs somewhere, I would always stay at the sound checks. You know, um, you know, and um at the um at at NAM about maybe four or five years ago, you know, Bootsy was out at NAM and there's a big long line. And you know, I had my son with me, he was like 11, 10, 11 years old. And I was like, hey, Alex, you know, we're going to go see Bootsy. He's like, Daddy, you going to stand in that line? I said, no. I said, I'm going to walk right up and Bootsy will recognize me. You know, he's like, really? I was like, yeah, you know, Alex, you know. So I walk and Bootsy says, family, family. So we hug, we hug. And I asked him, I said, hey, um, you know, because my favorite color is red. And um, I had this coral red star that was in Sterling. And he asked me for it and I gave it to him. And I said, hey man, do you still have that star that I gave you back in 1978, 79? And, he, and his wife says, yes, he does. He keeps everything, you know? And it's great because my son was able to witness this and we took a picture together. Matter of fact, I'll send you the picture. That's I'll send you the picture from there. Bootsy, myself and my son, Alex, who was then probably 10, 11 years old. And now he's taller than me. I'm six feet, now he's six two. And growing, so That's you know, great. but yeah, yeah. I, I've I've seen hundreds of concerts over the years, and I've never seen mm -hmm. a band tighter than oh. Bootsy's Rubber Band was on Dude. that tour. Dude, no, not just that tour. We did a we did a Bud Fest, right? Okay, so I had never seen the Mothership. This is when Parliament and Funkadelic had the Mothership, right? Okay, so. Parliament closed the show. You know, we had seen Bootsy. So when I see Parliament, it's like a letdown because I'm like, damn, man. They... But when Bootsy walked on the stage and his brother Catfish and Frank Cash Waddy got on the drums and the horny horns came out, it sounded like Parliament. I mean, it was like funk infused. You know what I'm saying? Um, and then I realized that Parliament, the group that toured, you know, because Bootsy was in Parliament, but after he started his own band, that band wasn't as tight as Parliament. They were, they were looser, almost like war, um, you know, you know, you know, because war is not like the, you know, like the Crusaders or something like that, just in terms of, you know, every note. But war had the songs, you know what I'm saying? Parliament, it was kind of like a mishmash of, 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 I mean, it still sounded good, but it just wasn't, I mean, I realized that the Bootsy Collins band, which was also the James Brown band back in the day, you know, after, you know, after, you know, after he stopped paying the other guys. Yeah. And <laughs> the level of funk, Scott, it was unbelievable. So well, I, I envy you being at the sound checks for sure. Oh and, man, 
And that yeah. show at the forum also had enchantment opening. I remember. Yeah. And, uh, but I heard you guys went to the UK and stuff and I guess you had someone else opening for those shows or. Yeah. 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 Well, see, cause what happened as our record got more successful, we moved up the, you know, we moved up, you know, because we used to open and there would hardly be anybody there. You know what I'm saying? And then we got to the point where, because when we first went on the road, we were getting $500 a night. So obviously Arista and a, and, and a couple of other people were un, underwriting the tour. As soon as Jack and Jill went to number three and couldn't get to number one because of the BG Saturday Night Fever, you know, and um, the reviews were coming in from our um, live performances. That's when we moved up to, you know, not opening. You know, we were second, then we were third because I remember um, we used to we used to sometimes confunction would play with us, and we would we would open and then it would be confunction and then it would be Bootsy. Then it got to the point where confunction opened for us, you know, and this was on the same tour. You know what I'm saying? You know, and then, the, you know, and then our second tour, you know, we opened for Rick James. And that's a whole nother, you know, that's a whole nother thing. But, um, you know, but, you know, but it was a great, great, great experience, you know, to be able to um, have that, you know, just to be there, you know, just to be there and to be in the presence because Bootsy Collins, you know, that's why I think Silk Sonic is very smart. You know, they they reached back and got Bootsy and that record that Bruno Mars and Anderson Park made, which is just a straight up Scott R and B record. That's an R and B record. Four to five okay? with Bootsy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying, even if you take Bootsy away, the music is R and B, dude. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, this is not I catch a grenade for you kind of thing. You know, you know, this is straight up R and B. Even the ballads, everything is R and B. You know, leave the door open. I mean, you know, that's an R&B ballad, you yeah. know, you know, so, you know, so that proves um, that if you make a great record, that it'll cross, it'll cross every genre. You know what I'm saying? Also, if it's yeah. presented in an accessible way for the public, you know, oh, right. Of course. If it's, pa if course. it's packaged the way. Right. Looks, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, what, uh, how did Array decide, you know, what guitar parts you might do or he would do? Because, you know, he's another guitar player. Okay, so what happened was Ray's not a soloist in the sense of a soloist. So when he found out that I could really play rock and then I play acoustic guitar too. So we would just sit there and after we come up with the song, you know, and after doing so many sessions, you know what I'm saying? Um, you know, um, it's like when I work with Dean Parks and all these guys, you know, you kind of know what your role is. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And, 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 you know, we would make suggestions to each other and, you know, um, you know, you know, and I would say sometimes, Hey, Ray, you need to, play that part and I'll play the other part or it will be vice versa. So that's how we would come up with it. You know. And did you get to I see Starguard on your um credits. Did you get to work with Norman Whitfield? Yes. Yes. Which was which was incredible. So Norman 
you talk about somebody that's a genius, you know, Norman could sit there and the thing, if you listen to Papa Was a Rolling Stone, okay, and 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 the great thing about Papa Was a Rolling Stone is that when we did the Temptations movie, um, you know, we recut all that music and, and on guitar is Wawa and myself, right? But Norman would have a song that would not have any change, bridge, it would be the same thing. But the way he carved the song out and the way he would arrange it, you know, um, it would be incredible. And just his thought process, you know, Norman's thought process in production was incredible because he would have me double guitars and then he would say, okay, so I want you to play the same thing, but just change one note. And I'm sitting there, now I'm getting a whole nother lesson because I already knew about the multiple guitar thing because Barry White used four and five guitars at one time, you know, and Barry's thing was that he gave you the part based on your personality, right? And Norman would just change one note and when you hear it back, you would be like, wow, you know, and just the process of Norman Whitfield and, you know, there was always a there was always a little jealousy from what Brian Holland used to tell uh, told me between Norman Whitfield, not so much Barrett Strong because he would come in and just do his thing and not get into that thing, you know. But you know, and I'm thinking there, thinking, you know, <laughs> Norman Whitfield, Barrett Strong, great songwriters, Holland Doja Holland, great songwriters, and there's a competition, you know what I'm saying? But um, it was a healthy competition, and that's great. You know what I'm saying? You know, and um, Norma was incredible, man. You know, I mean, his stuff is still getting played today, just like Holland Dodger Holland. Every day, somewhere, those songs are being played. Every day. You, you know, so with, that's a testament. That's a testament. Work, absolutely. You work with so many favorites of mine. I mean, another one, one of my all-time favorite male singers is Jeffrey Osborne, and done a lot with oh. him okay so jeffrey osborne george duke and dugu chancellor god rest his soul who also got me in the crusaders um he tells george duke okay you need to call this kid charles julian Farron. he's like probably the funkiest guitarist george but he can play anything though okay so Jeffrey Osborne, you know, who I knew, but I'd never worked with him because, you know, because when I met him, he was an LTD. So we're doing the first song, I Really Don't Need No Light, right? So I asked, you know, I mean, the, you know, the verse and the chorus really doesn't change. It's like the same music until you get to the bridge. So I asked, um, I said, George, you know, I'll do better if Jeffrey sings. And then I can kind of make the verse the verse and the chorus the chorus. He was like, man, well, whatever you need, man, whatever you need, I just need that funk. So George hooks up the mic. Jeffrey is walking around the studio singing. So now I get the whole song. And that vocal that Jeffrey did that day, George told me they kept 95% of that vocal. So every time I would do a session with George from that point on, he always had the vocal or a demo of the lead vocal because I would base my 
ad-libs around what the lead vocal was doing. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, so that, you know, so, you know, so that was a great run with George Duke because, I mean, well, first of all, it's George Duke. You know, that was, um, that was before I got into Crusaders, you know, um, but just the level of music excellence and the versatility of George, just, you know, you know, every step was taking me to a different level, you know, making me better. And George really loved funk. I mean, he was, you know, I mean, like he can play anything, you know, he was a great arranger, but George Duke loved funk. You know, it's kind of like it's kind of like you in that he was a chameleon musically. I mean, he did jazz, oh, yes. fusion, yeah, funk, yeah, pop, anything. Yes, 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 yes. You know, and and just to be in that be in that um, environment um, is incredible. And like when I got into Crusaders, you know, um, Reggie Andrews and Ndugu, God rest both of their souls. They started a production company, right? So they called me for everything. I mean, well, I'm talking about Charles. What Charles? What year did you get with the Crusaders? Um, eighty four to eighty six. Eighty four to eighty six. Okay. So we have been working at this studio called Conway. So and Dougal says, "Hey man, look, I need you to come down to Conway. I'm not going to tell you the artists. Just come on down and just you know hook up your guitar and play this chart." So I, you know, he he puts the chart out. I'm playing, and I feel people coming behind me, and you know, but I'm looking at the music, and then I realize, oh wow, this is Wilton Felder, who I had already worked with, because you know, Wilton played bass on a lot of records. I mean, like all the Jackson Five records, all the Barry White records, you know, you know, you know, you know, um, England Dan and John Ford Coley, you know. And then Joe says, man, 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 you, 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 you can play, man. And so Duke says, oh, man, he can play anything, flamenco, classical, da 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 So <clears throat> David T. Walker was also there, you know, because they've had a relationship for a long time. And I used to always ask David T., David T., do I have it? And he would always say, young blood, you getting there, man, you getting there. So we're on the session with the Crusaders and David T turns around to me and says, Charles, you have it. And I'm like, have what? And he's like, remember the thing you saw he used to ask me? And so now, I'm like, he says, I say, yeah, man. He says, yeah, man, you have it and you got it and you're gone, right? And um, and um, Joe Sample Paid the highest compliment to me. He wrote a, a, you know, they did an article in, on him in Keyboard Magazine, you know, and he stated that I was the best young musician that he had ever worked with, right? This is Joe Sample, bro. So, so he asked me to take a solo on a song, right? So I take my solo, and you know, I've been soloing, and he looks at me and he says, "Brother, you don't sound free." He says, "Solo is freedom." So, Scott, check this out. Every Friday for almost two years, for two to three hours uninterrupted, I got with Joe Sample at their office. Okay? So, 
I would bring my guitar, bring a small amp, and I'd always try to cheat and look at the see, see what Key was in. He said, no, turn your back. He said, with all that SHIT stuff that you know, he said, all you got to do is connect the dots like a puzzle. He said, like that number puzzle, you don't know what it is until you connect the numbers correctly. Then you see it's a lion or it's a this or it's a that. And Scott, one day, I come in and he starts playing something. And I just start going off. And he looks at me and says, brother, now you're free. Free of the you said, Yeah. Like album, you know, yeah. I mean, this is Joe Sample. You know, but 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 see, here's the thing. Ndugu knew what I needed to take me to the next level. Just think about that. You see what I'm saying? And, you know, and I told Ndugu every time I saw him that I loved him and I just appreciated, you know, him doing that for me. But he was just doing what other people did for him. Just imagine that. You see what I'm saying? So, Paying it you know, forward so, kind of thing, yeah. Yes, yes. You know, playing it forward, but also knowing that with all the music that I had, that this person could take me to another level. I mean, you know what I'm saying? That's just a beautiful, a beautiful um, thing, you know? And um, I just told this guitarist, um, Mitch Holder, okay? So Mitch Holder, incredible. If you look up his credits, he, you know, you know, he played in the Carson band. He did all the Barry Manilow records. So, so we used to do TV and film stuff together. And he calls me and says, Hey man, look, Barry Manilow is um, going to be doing Dionne Warwick and they want to go younger on guitar section. And I recommended you, he says, and the arranger is going to be Artie Butler, um, um, Billy Holiday's arranger. And I told Artie that you can really read, but the first thing that's going to happen is he's going to put a chart in front of your face. So just be ready for that. So when I get to the studio, you know, I'm playing the chart and I'm like, man, this sounds old. You know, you know, you know, if, you know, if I was doing an arrangement, I would, this is what I would do. So, so I wrote it in just to let Artie know, Hey man, you know, I know how to write. So, um, Barry Manilow keeps telling me that I look so familiar. And and Dion Warwick says, should I tell him? I said, no, I'll tell him on the break, right? But also, I have my little pearl quarter micro cassette recorder recording all these little ideas. And Barry Manilow tells me, man, I like your ideas. So on the lunch break, I said, well, you know, um, Barry, I used to be in um, Ray Parker's band radio. And I said, you know, I met you up at Arista. Um, and um, I remember the door was cracked to Clive's office. That was, you know, when Arista was in Century City. And Barry Mallow was banging on the desk because he had only sold 4 million copies. And I'm thinking, God, this guy's quadruple platinum. And he's telling Clive, look, I got to do minimum 7, 8 million. You know, and I'm thinking, wow, this is like an arrogant dude, right? So from that session, Barry Manilow and I wrote co-wrote three songs together. And I realized at that point, co-writing with Barry Manilow was going to change my writing status as a writer. And I just told Mitch Holder about a year ago, you know what I'm saying, um, um, what that session did for me and that he recommended me 
you know, and, you know, and it's just amazing. You know, I've had these great interactions with even, you know, musicians because, you know, you know, when I would do film stuff, I was always a groove guy, right? I'm, you know, hey, man, you know, Charles, give us that groove. You know what I'm saying? And they would say, hey, well, you know, the ending is here. So just make sure you play the ending. Oh, okay, great. So there was this one cue that was an Eddie Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen, Jimi Hendrix cue. So it's Mitch Older, Tim May, and myself. So Mitch turns to Tim and said, man, have you heard Charles play like rock and roll? He says, man, he's got this, he's got the Eddie Van Halen tapping thing down, but he also has his Hendrix thing. So they tell the composer, hey, man, you know, because he was like, uh, you know, he tells Mitch and Tim, um, you guys figure out who's going to do the rock part. So Mitch and Tim said, hey, hey, man, you need to let Charles do it. He says, no, Charles is the groove guy. Let him play the groove. Okay. I need you one. So Tim says, look, this guy needs to know that you can play this style of guitar. So they're about to take a lunch. So Mitch says, Charles, take part of your lunch and knock this out. So the producer says, okay, well, it's okay because we're going to lunch. The second engineer is going to be here. You know, if he wants to waste his time, then when we get back, you know, you or Tim do it, you know. Okay, so I, I, you know, go grab my um, Charvel with um, the Floyd Rose on it and it's got one pickup and one volume knob, and I grab my Marshall amp, and you know I have a whole different setup, right? So when he comes in, he asked, he said, "How did it go?" He said, um, "He did it like in one take." He says, "Okay, let me play it, let me hear it," and he hears it, and now he looks at me differently and says, "I'm gonna have to tell all these other producers because everybody thinks of you." as the groove guy, you know what I'm saying? And that's when I realized, wow, I have to show people what I can do. It's like when Dean Parks heard me play acoustic guitar, it's like, dude, I gotta tell, because he says, again, everybody thinks of you like this groove and funk guy that can read, but you can come up with these other intricate kind of parts. And, you know, it was, you know, Dean Parks, Mitch Holder, Tim May, you know, Jay Graydon, who's one of my favorite guitarists because, you know, he played the solo on Peg, which is, which is, by the way, that's a one take solo. They had called seven of the best guitars. Larry Skunk Baxter, you know, um, Charles Deering and Jay Graydon came in there. That's a first take solo on Peg, bro. That's a, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, Jay's like my hero, right? Um, but just these guys that, um, that um you know like they would tell me man you got to get into effects you know because at the end of the day they would say okay how many doubles do you have they said well we have 25 doubles and you know so and so and so they would ask me i was like well i don't have any doubles they're like dude you got to get a rack you got to make some effects because he said for every double you play the first double is 40 dollars, and then after that is 20 dollars." So I'm doing the math. So if you get 25, 30 doubles and you're already getting double scale, you know, so I hurried up and got a rack and, 
again, when I put my rack together, I went to those guys to help me get it set up the right way. You know what I'm saying? So I've had some blessed moments with guys who were not jealous or envious. You sit and think that were willing to put me in positions to where I would do TV and film and they would say, okay, hey man, you know, so um, this is what the strings are going to be. Can you play the top violin line in that lead sound that you have? And then, you know, do your little ad-libs, you know, you know, but this, you know, and, you know, and then I'm realizing I'm in a, I'm, I'm in a unique position and how I got to that position, you know, I was helped by some of the greatest, most loving and most giving guys you you know you know that didn't look at color did you know it's like they knew i wanted it they knew that i could do it and they put me in a position to do it that's you know awesome. i mean how fortunate is that man? yeah you know, that's, that's pretty fortunate bro i agree yeah there's much more to this great truth and rhythm interview just continue on to the next part of the episode also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinslift.net. Thank you very much.